expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Welcome to episode 148 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where you probably don't see a shadow because of Groundhog Day. It could be because there's someone right behind you. Yeah, I bought Resident Evil 7 on Friday, and I actually beat it Sunday night. (laughs) I think you just beat it as quickly as you did because you had to get it over with as soon as humanly possible. No, I'm actually going to be honest. I played Resident Evil 7. Normally, I buy a game. I play it nonstop, like nonstop throughout. That is true. I will vouch for him on that. Resident Evil 7 was like, I'll play an hour here. I'll play, I'll stream two hours there. It is just amalgamated into this whole, next thing I know, I'm on the final boss. And by the way, before we get more into Resident Evil 7, I'm Nick Battaglia alongside. I'm James Witham. And from what I hear, actually, those bosses were pretty crazy. It's one of those things you can't uh, really forget it. I don't really want to go into spoiler territory about some of the bosses. All I will say is that the main antagonist, there's another one that's not, you'll find out about, about later in the game, but the main family, the Baker family, yeah, there's some, some crazy shit with them, man. It's just, uh, it's it's insane. And what I'll say about Resident Evil 7 is, you know, going back to the time I said when I said I go, I spend an hour here, an hour there. It's not a long game. I know I texted you and I said I beat it, and I said it's not that long of a game. It's your standard eight to ten hour horror game. You know, you play a Bioshock, you play whatever. It's there. I will say this: the smart thing about Resident Evil Seven is, outside of it going back to its actual roots from the first game, and just being a legit horror game and not being what six and five were, which was just abominations, just action, action, action. It's a horror game that knows when to end before it gets too dumb or too crazy. And there's a lot of crazy shit that happens. I mean, a lot. It's a really well, think that, yeah. But there it, it knows when to stop. Like and it's a smart thing. They know when to end it and stuff like that. One of my favorite things about this game actually, as you mentioned, was just something something behind you. Playing this game in the dark is one thing. Playing in the dark with a headset on like I did and streaming it is a totally different thing. Dude, I I was not freaking out like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. But when you're climbing ladders in the dark and you're like, I've seen horror movies, <laughs> something's at the top and it doesn't, nothing's at the top. And you're like, you breathe. But then there's just moments where I'm like, oh shit, like yep. that happens. There is a, a negative, two negatives to it. Uh, one of them is more just a personal thing of mine. The personal thing being, I don't play a lot of first-person games because uh, the camera, you know, spinning and turning around. It's so weird, it, yeah. It, 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 it gets me dizzy mm-hmm. sometimes. Uh, and that was the case. Like, I couldn't play. That's part of the reason why I said an hour here and an hour there. Because I'd be playing a game and I'd be walking around a certain level or a certain part of the game and I'd get confused and I'm like doing a 360 spin and I'm trying to go around circles. I'm next thing I know I gotta lay down for an hour because I'm dizzy. <laughs> you know. But uh another a negative of it is because of the type of antagonists in the game outside of the family, there's not a whole different set of monsters. It's like it's one set of monsters you face through the entire game and then there's the same set of monster but it's except it's on instead of standing up, it's on all fours of I spider. gotcha. 
So there's not a lot of different different types of monsters, but it's kind of like as you see what happens in the game, you're like, okay, I can kind of see why that is. But overall, it's 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 fun. Um, I think that you know, as a single guy, if I had a girlfriend, this is a game I would legit have my girlfriend play. Not just to be a dick, but to be like, I I want to you know play it. Like you know, this is this and that's the thing. It's, it's I think it's a cool game that you can play as a couple in the dark and just. You know what I'm saying? It's like watching a horror movie. Except you're just playing one. Yeah, pretty much. So best one since the first one. Uh, I'd say probably the best. Not the best since the first one. I'd say right under two. Okay. I, I, I'd say it's. It, I, I'll say it's. I mean, because it's. It's so. It's such a return to its original roots in terms of just the the what the type of story it's telling and the the fact that there's a lot more puzzles. There's a lot more. I mean, that's the thing about this game is that yes, there are things that pop out at you. But a lot of it is psychological. That's good. Where you're, like, walking in an area. Like, you walk out in the backyard of this house, and you're like, fuck, is anything going to come out? And you hear things, you know? Or you're walking in the house, and you hear footsteps, and you're, like, looking around, but there's nobody around. See, you needed surround sound for this, I'm guessing. I mean, if you had, like, a, a like a well, nice no, surround well, sound honestly, system. Well, surround sound would work, but, I, like, a headset was fine for me. You know, if I'm going to spend 30 bucks on a headset, if you want to stream, like I do, uh, on Twitch, you know... That's fine because it's enclosed and it's there and it really immerses you in that game. But overall, I'd give it probably I'd give it an eight out of ten. Uh, it's pretty good. Out of a couple of things, but again, this is a great return for Resident Evil Seven. This is a, a just a great game in general. And again, the replay value, it's there, but only if you have somebody with you who can enjoy. Like right. if you beat on your own, you're like okay, be on my own. But if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whomever, you say hey, let's. Go through this again, or I want to see you. That's probably the reason why I wanted to have, if I have when I have a girlfriend, I want her to, to run through this game because I'm like, okay, I know how I reacted, and I want to see how you react to this. So, in in any other case, you would say play it, enjoy it, and then get top dollar for it at GameStop. No, actually, I would hold on to this one just because I'm a, I'm somebody who, who likes having a library. So, I, this is not a game where I'm gonna. It, it's a game also like a year or so down the road when I have nothing to play. Like, Uncharted 4, I started playing that again. It's like, oh, I'll revisit Resident Evil 7. And that's enough about Resident Evil 7. But coming up next, we have a couple of new comics this week, including The Return of Darth Maul. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Hale Appleman from The Magicians, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, boys and girls, it's that time where we pull out our long boxes as we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, I'll go first this week, so... Of course, you know, Marvel is in charge of all the Star Wars books right now. Of course, they when they bought Star Wars, they got the books and everything from Dark Horse, the whole licensing thing. So, you know, they had the Star Wars regular series run. It took place, you know, before Episode Four. They had the Darth Vader comic, which has ended. And now they're saying, hey, we need a new person, a new story we can do. So... They said, you know what, Darth Maul's been around. He had to, of course, he was supposed to have his own video game, which got canceled. Let's uh, build on his history and, and his character. So, of course, they enlisted the writing expertise of Colin Bond and artist Luke Ross and colorist Nolan Woodard, and they decided, you know what, let's do a Darth Maul comic book series. And I got to tell you, this, of course, takes place before the events of Episode One, And this is where Darth Maul is under the tutelage of Darth Sidious, of course, as you all know him as Emperor Palpatine. Right. So this is dealing with a young Darth Maul who is all about revenge. He's he's like, throughout the entire book, he's narrating to himself, 
I've been taught to hate. I've been taught to, you know, to have anger in my heart. But yet I'm being told to not go after Jedi, to not observe Jedi. I have to wait for the Emperor to have his plan in place before he can give me the go-ahead. So he pretty much this whole first issue is him defying the Emperor and kind of as a, a, a rogue to, to, you know, uh, person that goes under his supervision, if you will. Okay. And it's, it's very interesting. And it starts off with very monster-esque opening, uh, good amount of action in the story. The, the art by Ross is really, really good. And it's pretty standard, actually. I think if you've read the other Star Wars books, this goes hand-in-hand what you've already seen for the most part. But one thing that Cullen gets across in this book is that there is literally no saving for Darth Maul. You know, whenever you see a Sith person, you see, oh, maybe there's some way I can turn them back to the Jedi side or make them see the light or the error of their ways. There ain't no fucking way he's going to be turning good anytime soon. Well, I mean, when you've got horns coming out from everywhere, I mean, it's, your path's pretty much set, I think. <laughs> well, 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 again, it's the whole fact of we don't know about his history, just know the fact that he pretty much has just started, for the most part, being right. taught by Sidious. So I think that when you see what's going on with this whole first issue – you're getting an idea of, okay, maybe as the issues go forward, there's going to be some dissension in the ranks. There's going to be uh, some conflict between Sidious and Darth Maul, like we saw in the Darth Vader comic. If you read that, there were times where Vader kind of did some things against the Emperor that kind of oh, caught yeah. the ire of the Emperor. So it kind of is, is built around that. Now, the only thing that I think, and it's not a fault of Colin or anybody that works on the book, a fault of this series, I think, is... We already know what happens to Darth Maul. We know that he dies. And this is just me. I'm just speaking as myself. But when I find out, like, this is why I'm not a big fan of prequels for the most part. Because my thing is, once I find out how somebody's going to die or what's going to happen or what has already happened, I'm kind of like, okay, I know how this is going to end, so how are you going to keep my attention in this? And the best way to keep my attention, and again, just speaking for myself, is show me ways where this thing could have been avoided, where a person going evil could have been avoided, where a whole war in the galaxy could have been avoided. For example, like I like Planet of the Apes, the whole prequel they've been doing in the films, because it sets up how many ways that this whole mess between the humans and the apes could have been avoided. Whereas with this, it's it's already set in stone. Maul is evil. He's you know under the tutelage of Sidious, and pretty much this whole war. There's a, there's peace in the galaxy, but now this whole begin. You're seeing the beginnings of this war, if you will. And so that's what my only problem with it is that I don't think going past this first issue that I can maintain the same level of not hope, but just interest going forward. So, I mean, this book overall, though, I'll say this, it's a pull. It's a definite buy. But just in my case, this is a book where I know what happens to Darth Maul. I know no matter what happens in this series, you know, whether he's in danger or whatever, uh, 
that there is always going to be that thing where Obi-Wan cuts him in half at the end, you know? So yeah. I, I, it's just, that's just me, you know? I understand. I mean, it's, it's tough when, when you're talking about any kind of prequels, especially, I mean, Gotham has done a fantastic job of keeping my interest, even though, you know, Bruce isn't going to die, even though he's, he's been in danger on the show before. Not a lot, but before, but you know, they give you so many different things like, okay, what, how could the relationship between Riddler and Penguin have been different and stuff like that? And, you know, stories about Clayface and all these other different dynamics that they bring. So you're right. When you know someone's fate already, it's hard to keep the interest unless it's like a legit biography and you're trying to learn something and it's for learning purposes. Right. So, yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. So what'd you do this week? Well, I decided to, so you spoke of Planet of the Apes a couple seconds ago, I decided to dive into a crossover that we've been looking forward to, the Planet of the, of the Apes Green Lantern crossover from Boom Studios and DC Comics. Stories by Robbie Thompson, Justin Jordan takes care of the writing, Barney B. Bagenda does the art, colorist is Alex Gumieres, letters by Ed Dukeshire, and the design is by Scott Newman. Now, nothing starts out a great crossover book like a big mass murder. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, how else you could I, mean, I can't say that that's how I thought that this was going to start, but that's how it starts. Uh, not really a spoiler, because I'm not going to tell you who it is or what happens with it, but let's just say that we find out in the you, you do find out in the middle of the book that'll make you wait long. You find out in the middle of the book who does it and why they do it. The first page is just James Franco's body just ripped in half to shreds just lying there pretty much i mean i mean the bodies hit the floor let's just say that (laughs) they absolutely do but after that happens uh you see something that happens as a result of that and then we finally suddenly find ourselves on the planet of the apes which is of course earth and cornelius is the first one of the planet apes that we see and we talk about how He's trying to find artifacts that prove that human life still existed and how Dr. Zaius has kind of tried to eliminate that. And just in general, it doesn't seem like things are going very well on the planet of the apes. There's a lot of dissension. There's a lot of an us versus them kind of thing. And it's one of those, it's one of those things where you go, gee, you know, if only I had this one thing that could just make everything better and change everybody's mind and influence all of these people. And that's kind of the gist of the story as things go along. I mean, you do see a lot of the Green Lanterns. I mean, you see a lot of the characters that you're going to be familiar with. But generally, this this book all centers around what happens in the beginning, the end result of that, and then what happens on the planet of the apes itself that makes the Green Lanterns then have to go to Earth and the planet of the apes to find out exactly what the hell is going on. So I can't really say much more. Without okay. spoiling anything, I will say that the ending is pretty interesting, and what happens with this thing is very, very compelling, and it makes you, as a Green Lantern fan, very, very interested in what's going to happen and how that this is even possible. I'm sorry about being vague, but it's kind of a big deal, and I don't want to be the one that spoils it for you. I'd rather have somebody read the book this... and get their reaction on it. This might be a heading in the spoiler territory, or it probably is, but I haven't read the book yet. Uh, it's actually in my comics folder on my computer. But can you answer me this question? Okay. Does it share? Okay, we both read Star Trek Green Lantern. We saw, like, you know, Chekhov becoming a Blue Lantern and so on and so forth. Is there anything like that in this book where we're seeing, like, certain apes getting <laughs> certain rings? You have no idea. 
So, uh, the si- the simple quick answer is yes. Okay. Um, but it's not that simple. So, how's the, how's if that the adds to the intrigue at all, then there you go. Um, I mean, the art's pretty good. Uh, obviously, you see Ethan Van Shriver's art on the cover, and it's hard to get away from that because, I mean, Ethan Van Shriver's been so iconic in, in Green Lantern, so you kind of want more of that. But I will say that the art in the interior... It's pretty solid, especially I think it's more solid for the for the Planet of the Apes uh, panels than it is for the for the actual Green Lantern panels. And, and maybe and again, that could just be me. I've got certain artists and creators when it comes to Green Lantern stuck in my head. And, you know, if you're reading Green Lanterns or Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps in Rebirth right now, it's hard not to get that just etched into your brain. You know what I mean? Right. So it's hard for me to step away from that. There's nothing wrong with the art, especially like the last few pages are gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous, and it and it definitely lends itself to the story. So it's not like knock your socks off great, but it's definitely good. I mean, for that reason, I've been kind of going back and forth on this, but the more and more I think about it, the more and more I'm intrigued by what it is that actually occurs in the last few pages and how things have come about. And let me just say this, the different use of colors in this book makes a difference. More so than you think. You actually, if you pay attention, you'll see little subtle things about the colors that will lend more to the story, which normally, you know, colors are, you know, it's a bright book, or it lends to the mood, or it really sets the scene. This one, you, right. if you pay attention, it actually matters more than it usually does as far as colors in this book. So I'm going to go ahead and give this a poll. This is definitely a book that you're going to have to buy, especially if you're a Green Lantern fan and you're intrigued. If you're a Planet of the Apes fan, this is something different that will make you go, huh? So if this was interjected into this, then that would. This is how things would go. Yeah, and the, you know, real quick thing about Green Lantern books in general is the one thing you cannot fuck up in the Green Lantern book is color. You cannot yeah. mess that yeah. up because as soon as you mess up the colors in the Green Lantern book, you're, you're it's it. That that's that's it pretty much. Not but, only do they not mess it up, they make it matter more than it would in right. a regular book. Right, and that's the most important thing about Green Lantern. Is, I mean, of course, you have the writing the art as well, but the color and how it's used and, and utilized is the most important thing. At least I, would say, I would say, outside of writing, it's probably like the 1B that's most important, I would think. Definitely, and, and that's one of the... you got to have a good colorist, and that's why they grabbed one. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of What We're Reading. But coming up next, James and I took a trip to Riverdale, and well, let's just say that it was mighty confusing. A review of Riverdale, coming up next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, guys and gals, let's grab a group and head on over to the malt shop, because it's time to talk about something that's not like that at all, and that's Riverdale from the CW. Well, I say, James, that's a swell idea, mister. Yeah, have you heard that new record? That new record's hot. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> but yes, Riverdale on the CW, of course, the show not based off the Archie comics. It's more of a, they take the characters from Archie and induce seven things totally different with it. The show that says it's based on Archie comics and the credits, <laughs> but, but it's really, not. <laughs> it's not. And anybody says, oh, what about the Wade run? Okay, nobody who thinks about Archie comics is thinking about the Wade run that's out right now, okay? Nobody's... Or the alternate universes like Archie versus Predator right. and stuff like that. I'm talking about Archie Comics because this is based on 
Archie Comics. And I gotta say, man, I'm not really sure what this show is based on. And that's what I said before about the whole seven different things. It's that this is a show where we talked about Powerless last week. And Powerless knew what kind of show it wanted to be. Granted, you know, it had new writers and everything else like that, but it knew what it wanted to be in the end. This show, it wants to take some of Barcy Blues, it wants to take some of Seventh Heaven, it wants to take some of uh, Twin Peaks, Melrose Place. Melrose Place, and mix match it all together, and it, you get a, a giant clusterfuck of what? <laughs> and that's kind of what it was. It was like, okay, so first you thought it was going in this direction, then you thought it was going in this direction, and it's not like, it's not like, you know, when certain characters have their own stories, like their own side stories, and then there's always one central thing, and there is one central thing, but it's like, Okay, so you got back to that at the end, but it's like the central thing doesn't even seem like the central thing anymore. Well, this is a show that's also based around Riverdale in terms of also the high school. So you Spoilers thought, ahead, by the way. Right, so you thought going into this, okay, it's going to be... A, I expect, I, honestly, going into this, I expected a teen drama. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I expected a teen drama with a little bit of mystery to it. Okay, but there are just certain lines. And the pro- a big problem with this show, in terms of the writing, is that... I know you have one thing, a couple of things that you had problems with, but one thing for me, what big thing, is that a lot of the dialogue contradicts itself. For example, like there's a scene, and a lot of it's actually unoriginal too. Like there's a scene where Archie's talking to his dad, and his dad's like, you know, I hear you don't want to play football, you don't want to work for me, what is it? And then, you know, the dad gives him the spiel of, you know, later on, you're going to have my life. And then, of course, Archie's the son, like James Vanderbeek was. In Varsity Blues, he's like, I don't want your life, Dad. You and, then, and then there's the thing, well, I just don't want you to lie to me. I'm like, no, you can't recover from that now. Yeah. You basically just... Or or there's a big part, too, where the whole, okay, Betty and Veronica, they're friends at first, but then there's that rivalry, like, why do they not like each other? What's going on? You know, That love triangle between them and Archie. And they set up those two in terms of Betty and Veronica as friends and kind of girls who... Have, for one sense or another, kind of lost their path in a sense, or trying to find out what they are, or regroup in a sense, and then, then they build this basis of like, okay, you're trying to build this base of trust, and then your typical Veronica's got to make out with Archie or whatever, and and that's gonna cause a rift, and it's like that's dumb because if you watch the show, Betty, Veronica gives Betty, she see Veronica oh, sees, totally, yeah. okay, Veronica sees that Betty is interested in Archie. And Veronica says, you know what? I see this, and I'm not going to jump on it. So here's the ball. Take the shot. And instead, Betty doesn't take the shot. Betty says, oh, Archie, I know Veronica says I have something to ask you about the dance, but how about you go with both of us to the dance? That's not even my biggest problem. My biggest problem was towards the end, when Archie's find, when Archie's looking for Betty. Right. And they go up to Betty's house, and he's like, and now, now keeping in mind that he just told Veronica in the closet, which we'll get to that kind of whole thing a little bit later on. He tells Veronica, "I've never felt that way for Betty. She's my best friend." Okay, fine. But then when he's in front of her house, he says to her, well, I could never be good enough for you. Well, what is it then? Who are you lying to? Because those are two different things. You're obviously lying to someone. And I think, that that's, I think that's kind of what the writers of the show try to capture on. Because they're kind of like, oh, how can we make, you know, how can we not raise stakes? How can we build tension? And you're building it the wrong way because it's just 
You're just doing it based off of lies. You're not doing it based off of anything really interesting. It's just one guy and Archie who's just constantly lying. And it's like, well, what's the best? And it's like the way that and we were watching this, and I turned to you and I said, I go, you know, why don't they just, they had something kind of natural with this whole Betty Veronica friendship. Why don't they build it up? Because it's 13 episodes this yep. season. So, like, why don't they just build this up for, like, three to four episodes, and then in that fourth, fifth episode, have that that non-unoriginal rift between the two, whatever it may be, and then whatever. Here's the other problem, too. What time period does this show want to be? Because right. you, you've got the diner, you've got, you're using words like swell and stuff like that, and then you're forcing... And the, the whole spin the bottle and go in the closet thing. And then you force stuff like Twitter and Uber. And it's like, yeah. you're clearly just shoving it in our faces that, oh, by the way, just as a reminder, this is in modern times. Well, yeah, you have, you have Mad Men references. Like, that's so Draper, you know, for season one or whatever. And, you know, it's so Betty Draper season one. It's like, you're trying too hard. And going back to the whole Betty Veronica thing, it's like you could have had something natural. You could have had a relationship that people... Like, I literally started to care about the relationship between Betty and Veronica. Yeah, they were because, building something. They were building something. And then they just shed on it in the first episode. I'm like, well, now I don't care. Like, you know, I don't care that they don't like each other now. because, And plus, you, it's baseless because Betty's... I don't understand they're high schoolers in this show, but it's like... Look, you understand, like, she gave you the layup. But it's not even that. It's like that that Cheryl woman. Right. The Cheryl girl, who's, that's part of the other, that's one of the other 17 stories that's going on here. She kind of manipulates this whole thing. She's like the worst manipulator ever. Like, you could easily see through pretty much anything she does. Right. Because as far as high school you girls go, see, she sucks at it. You can see, well, here's the thing, is she is the mean girl. She's the bitch of the show. Right, but she's not even good at it. Right, because you, if anybody like can see how she is, now granted we're guys in our twenties and our thirties, you know, so we've been through high school. We've seen, we know how people act in high school. You know, we were once teenagers before. True, but the thing is, is like, you you can't see through that veneer, like that that, that what she's trying to do. You, you can't call her out. That's, that's what they do. Is nobody calls her out on her bullshit. It's the most translucent veneer ever. Right, and I mean Veronica kind of does call but, her out on her bullshit once. But right. then, right when that, my point is here is when that happened, that's when she lost her power. Right, is what I'm saying. That's when when Veronica calls her out on her bullshit, the cheerleading tryouts. That's when she loses her power. So anything she does, from then on out, should be null and void because you know who you're dealing with. Right, and that's the thing too. Is just, and, I, and again, I apologize for confusing anyway. But this show is really fucking confusing. Yeah. Because it it's goes in one direction and then it just veers off to another and then that branches off to another unconnected you know things you got the thing with Veronica's parents and you got Archie's dad and this whole thing with Archie and his teacher which is weird and yeah and then of course the the sister and her twin brother, brother and, the, the, and the murder thing that and happened the brother there. shows up at the end yeah his body shows up and it's like now it's this murder mystery so it's just a show where. Again, you don't know what it, it doesn't know what it wants to be. It's almost like they're trying to appeal to absolutely every audience yeah. possible. You can't do that, okay? It's just not possible. I don't care what kind of a show you have. You're just not going to appeal to everybody. If this show would just pick a lane or could have picked that. a lane, maybe it would have worked out a little bit better. And not only that, but I want to talk about Cole Sprouse, who plays Jughead in the show. Oh. The entire episode... 
No, I've read a couple Archie comics. I'm not a, a fan. I wouldn't come see myself a fan. Neither would I, really, but... Right. But Jughead was never really the dark, mysterious guy sitting at a bar. He was the moron. He was the moron. Let's just put he it out there. He was moron pounded burgers all day. Which is fine, because... And I realize that you can't really... Maybe you can't have that in this day and age. I don't know, or, but... Or not about the day and age. I think you can't have somebody like a total dumbass like that... In a show, is trying to be as serious as Riverdale I is. I guess, but then maybe that's part of the problem. But that's the thing is like you give him this like I'm just I'm writing a book, I'm writing a story, and, you know I'm just mis- I wear all black and I have a black hat and everything else like that. It's like dark, mysterious, and he's are, they turn Jughead into the guy that girls say I can change him. Don't you just want to change him? Don't, don't can you just put him on a nice he's shirt, so, some slacks? Yeah. Could you, what's with the crown hat? Can you get rid of the crown hat? <laughs> Come on. He makes those himself. It's so wonderful. <laughs> but, I mean, Don't that's you just love a man the, that can sew? Oh, Jesus. But, I mean, that's what they try to make him. They try to make him this guy who's mysterious and whatever and lingers in the background. And sits by himself purposely in he, every scene he, in the show. He is, the, I mean, he narrates pretty much throughout the entire episode of the pilot. He is the type of character who, like, is that, you know, there's evil out there. You know, he's that, he's that, that guy who comes in and is like, there's something afoot. I I've seen it all. If in one of those future, in one of the future episodes, he's got one of those creepy corkboard things. Right. Where everything's connected. <laughs> the diagram. I mean, come on, because it seems like that's kind of the direction that we're going. Oh, I'm writing this book, and it's, it's about his murder. And I'm like, come on. Come on. But, and that's the thing, is that just... This whole show, and we'll get to our ratings in a second, but this whole show just feels uninspired. And there's something I said about this, too, when we were watching this. I said, had this show been released maybe in the early 90s, late 80s, around that kind of Beverly Hills 90210 era, or even if you want to go early 2000s, late 90s, Dawson Creek, Party of Five, that would be perfect. Like, that would have been a perfect time. But I think in 2017, this is a show... It does not know what it wants to do, and also it's just, I think it's too late for its time. And even those shows found places to bring humor in. And they found places to center themselves and focus on things. You can't take something like Archie Comics and turn it completely serious because it didn't cut its teeth on being serious. Well, just, and that's the thing that I want to mention too is that, you know, I talked about this with Emerald City and stuff like that, is that, you know, certain shows don't know. Uh, they they stray away from what they know they are supposed to be. Like Emerald City is supposed to be the sh- was supposed to be the show about lightheartedness and, and majestic stuff and everything else like that, and it was just bland. And that's the thing with Riverdale. It's supposed to be as kind as camp and everything else like that, but it lost its campiness and everything else. And there's a few there's three characters in this where I'm like. Fuck, why didn't they do a Josie and the Pussycats Right, show? That, that's the that thing. That would have been awesome. That would have been a lot better, and I think that would have made more sense. But to go back to your point, it's like watching the Adam West Batman TV right. series. where It knows what it and is. And this isn't sacrilege by me saying, you know that's not really Batman. Right. Okay? You know that that is a version of Batman that they're telling to, to appeal to a certain audience. That's, that's Earth-36 Batman. Right, exactly. <laughs> this is not Archie. No. It is their version of an Archie story with these characters by name only, and they're doing something completely different. Now, if you can like it for that, 
That's fine. That's not why I don't like it. I don't like it because it doesn't know what it wants to and, be. And, and here's the thing. This is going to sound super shallow. I know. It sounds really, really shallow. But a reason why I think people would come back to the show is because this show's full of pretty people. That is true. This that show's true. full of pretty people. People with abs, people with perfect teeth, people with perfect bodies. Like So there's a sense of attractiveness to where you're like, Oh, I, I'm gonna watch this because I'm attracted to Camila Mendez, who plays Veronica, or I'm attracted to KJ Alpa, who plays Archie, because we see his abs like the first five minutes of the show. Right. And the thing is, I can say that because all these people are in their twenties, so it's fine. But it's just that's and that's how people are. People are that shallow where like they'll stick with the show, even though it's not the best writing, it's not the best story. But goddamn, they like I, I'm attracted to this person, so and, I'm just gonna watch them. And that's okay because I think at a certain age we've all been there. Right. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but you can't make the argument that this is a great show no. if that's why you're watching it. Because I'm, I'm see, I saw a lot of stuff on social media when the show first premiered this past Thursday about how oh this uh, this show is so awesome. And now that I've watched it, I'm like, is it? And yeah. everybody's entitled to their opinion, but but we, what are you basing this, this off was of? A, I guess bottom line, it was like a 40 minute show without commercials. It felt like two hours. How many times did we look at the clock when we were watching this? Like five. Like both of us, at separate times, at least looked at the clock five like times. Five, five, yeah, like five apiece. And you know when you're watching this on on the CWC or CW app, you can look and see you yeah. know, how much time you have left. And a couple times I just went, oh, man. Well, yeah, like like it was a commercial break or whatever. And I'm just like, okay, I wonder how much you got. Oh fuck, really? It's still at 25 minutes. I could have sworn it was at like 37. <laughs> now I I do want to say that that. It's not that anybody in the cast no. did a bad job per no. se. No, like I, you know, I think I think Camila Mendez does a wonderful job. She did a great as job, Veronica. Actually, I think, I think Lily Reinhardt does a great job as Betty. I think KJ Apa is a good Archie. It's just that the story that they tell is unoriginal. It's the fact that the writing is not the best. But you got these people who I think if you know for a different thing, it would have been set. Better, you know what I'm saying? Like this is not a flaw in the cast; it's more a flaw in the writing. Yeah, you're trying to do too much, right? And and you're, I know I know that you want to try and do all of these things at once, but if you really have faith in your show and where you're going and future seasons, you can save some of this stuff. Right. If you want to focus on the murder mystery in season one, okay. And you, I know you have to have a couple little quote unquote side arcs, but give yourself a focus and don't try to focus on five or six different things at the same time because very shows can do, very few shows can do that and do it well and this it just didn't happen here right uh, real quick I really want I know we're kind of getting along for time but I, really quick before we get to our ratings what do you think of the thing with Archie and his teacher uh, I thought it was an interesting. It was an interesting thing that I didn't necessarily expect. It was an interesting misdirection, I'll yeah, say. It there was, was a positive in this show. Yeah, that was an interesting misdirection. I think that that is something that, that, that will definitely be a ongoing story going forward with the Archie and the whole music thing. But you can tell by the teacher's body language how this is going to well, go. I mean, he did sleep with her. Yeah. And they did, and the whole July 4th thing, you know, when they hear the gunshots, yep. and they you know, stuff like that. So they have a couple of mysteries between them. So she's very on edge. But let's give our ratings for this. If you want to go first, feel free. Like I said before, it's not like I grew up cutting my teeth on Archie. So it's not like I'm coming at this from a perspective of 
a diehard Archie fan that just can't let go of the fact that they're doing something different. I have no problem with doing something different. I think that it's been done before and been done very well. My problem is, is this show is disjointed. It doesn't know what it wants to be. It doesn't even know what time period it wants to be in. So I think I'm going to give this... <sighs> Four hats that Jughead made himself out of ten. <laughs> well, I want to start by saying this again. This is not a slight on the actors. I think the actors tried their best what they were given in terms of writing. The big flaw in this, however, is, of course, the writing. As you mentioned, this is a show that does not know what it wants to be. It has a lot of different branches that I feel disjointed and just loses track of what the central synopsis of the show should be. And the thing I want to talk about real quick is just... This is a show, again, when you want to do something different, let's look at Lucifer. Lucifer, totally different Completely from the Completely different. But what they do, they built storylines in there that made it interesting, that made it work, and they made it work as a procedural. You want to make a Riverdale a murder mystery show, kind of like a Twin Peaks for, for teens? Fine. Awesome. Great. But don't interject all these different things, especially in the pilot alone, all these like five, seven different arcs in one episode because then it makes everything feel disjointed. And really, it just force-feeding this to people who probably more than likely have never read an Archie comic in their life or really anything in terms of this series at all. So for me, the writing is just disjointed. It doesn't know what it wants to do. The, The characters just... Mostly Jughead kind of feel... Weird. Uh, I think that this would have been perfect and much better if they said, you know what, this is, we're going to do a Josie and the Pussycats show. Because I think, honestly, overall, they're trying to build this Archie universe. Like with the Arrowverse, they're going to probably have Archie, and then they're going to have Josie and the Pussycats and launch from that, and Jughead as well. But, you know, my overall rating, I'm going to give this 3 out of 10 times I've made out with my teacher in the backseat of her Volkswagen. <laughs> ah, memories. <laughs> ah, high school. Because we've all been there, right? Uh, she was a great kisser. But that's going to do it for our review of Riverdale. We'll come next to a bunch of nerd news. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Gene Ha, comic artist and writer of May. And this is the White and Nerdy Podcast. No, no, that's a uh, parody song. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, James, where we go around, well, normally go around the interwebs, but this week, at least for our first story, we're going to be going around the empty chair in the Batcave, because it's time for what? Nerd News! I make that reference because, well, it's official, Ben Affleck is not directing the Batman movie anymore, he's actually instead going to be focusing on acting in it, and he actually came out with a, a statement. He said, quote, There are certain characters who hold a special place in the hearts of millions. Performing this role demands focus, passion, and the very best performance I can give. It has become clear that I cannot do both jobs to the level they require. Together with the studio, I have decided to find a partner and a director who will collaborate with me on this massive film. I'm still in this, and we are making it, but we are currently looking for a director. I remain extremely committed to this project and look forward to bringing this life for fans around the world. Bringing this to life for fans around the world. Of course, Variety broke the story, and I will say this. 
I think, I mean, I, I know how somebody was saying, oh, yeah, he's directing the movie. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Well, if you've seen the movies he's directed lately, they haven't been so great. So I'm thinking this is a good move by Warner Brothers. Not only that, but, and then all the stories start to come out, right? Oh, well, now he's not going to be Batman at all. And remember when he said if the script wasn't good, he wasn't going to direct it and all this other stuff. Stop it. Just stop Well, here's it. the thing. Chris Terrio, who, of course did the writing for a Justice League movie, can't come in. He literally did a lot of rewriting for the, the Batman script. Yeah, and you remember he worked, he worked with Affleck and with Ar- in Argo, and that worked yep. out well, right? So, I right. mean, I, 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 trust the, I trust them bringing him in. I think that that's a good call. I mean, obviously, once we see Justice League, we'll probably know more about whether or not that was a good call since he was heavily involved in that. Here's the other thing. Who are these fans that started a petition of Zack Snyder direct the Batman movie? Who are you people? <laughs> what is wrong with you? I don't like to judge people, but what in the blue hell are you thinking? <laughs> I think the people who got lobotomies after seeing Batman vs. Superman went to see it again, got another lobotomy, saw it again, got another lobotomy. I think that they've had a little bit too much of Granny's peach tea. Like that because I mean, put the mason jar down. It's it's enough is enough already. I don't get the fascination with Zack Snyder. I I, like, I don't I'll, get it. Either. I will say this: when he redid um, the uh, Dawn of the Dead, like, I like that, you know. But the dude isn't the best director. I mean, I'm just saying that right now. I mean, for Christ's sake, Zack Snyder's the whole reason why Warner Bros. went to s- months. And months of damage control after Batman vs. Superman. They yanked the rug out from under him for a reason, okay? There's a reason they don't want him to really be a part of Justice League, really. But he's got, but it's already done, and he has his fingerprints on it, so they're like, well, okay, we're going to go with this. And I mean, he is the reason why Jeff Johns is, you know, is now seated at the head of the DC table. But at the same time, isn't that a good thing, though? All the bad stuff that Zack Snyder has been a part of so far has given us Jeff Johns, has kind of brought in Chris Terrio. So maybe, just maybe, this is all a good thing. And Ben Affleck not directing the Batman movie, which was supposed to start filming, what, was it this spring or next spring? Yeah, it was supposed to be ready. They were saying that it was supposed to be ready for 2018. Nope. Nope. (laughs) No, it won't be. Sorry. Well, I mean, and of course you have the potential laundry list of, you know, David Fincher could be directing it, or this guy, or this woman, or whomever. It's like, listen, at this point, I mean, seeing how, I mean, we haven't seen Wonder Woman yet, of course. It's, it's over, like, I think it's like 120 days or something until Wonder Woman comes out. Yep, right around that. So I'm like, you know what? Let's see how Wonder Woman goes. And because the thing, I say that because... A, Wonder Woman's going to really decide how D- the DCEU, if it's going to get life support or if it's, gonna, you know, if it's just going to die in, in a hole somewhere pretty much. Because remember, Patty Jenkins, they used her to replace the director they had prior. So it's like, okay, maybe if DC has this thing where we fire the original director, replace them with somebody else, <laughs> the movie gets insanely better. So again, there's a lot riding on Wonder Woman. Well, they they did that for a really good reason, so I'm glad they oh, signed yeah. the first director. But she's gonna have a talking pet tiger. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that Suicide Squad, as much as people would disagree with me, did a pretty good job of breathing life both, back again, into the DC universe. Again, we are literally 
it's gotten to the point where we're pretty much Jack and Rose. We're both in the fucking ocean, and the and the people who hate Suicide Squad and the lifeboats looking for people to bring in, and they see us, and they see our opinions, and they're like, ah, fuck you, you're gonna stay frozen and die. I don't understand the vitriol. I really don't. Is it a cinematic masterpiece of epic proportions? No. No. It was a fun movie, okay? It was a fun movie, for Christ's sakes. But, I mean, overall, I, again, we'll see who directs this. I think... Whoever comes in to direct this, I think it's going to have a close relationship with Ben Affleck, so we'll yes. see how this goes. But, you know, this wasn't the only time this week where we had somebody big in name leaving a certain project. Not really leaving in terms of Ben Affleck, but at least in this case, this person's leaving for good. Yep, Peter Capaldi has announced that he'll be stepping down as the doctor in Doctor Who says the next series will be his last, and I think the Christmas special is is a part of that. But I'm telling you, man, I'm not surprised by this. I know you're not surprised by this either. But, I mean, it just seems like they can't hold on to a doctor. <laughs> well, I think that he, and here's, the, here's what I believe is that – and when we say series, that's what they – in Britain, that's what they call seasons. They right. call them by series. Right. They don't call them seasons. So after this – in America, if you're listening in America, after this next season of Doctor Who, he's done. Now, here's the thing. I think that him getting this was one thing when he first got it. He's like, okay, cool. But I don't think – I've seen a couple episodes from this season. I haven't watched the full thing. I don't think that he was fully into it. I don't think that he was fully committed, I'll say, to, to, to this. And I think that Moffat leaving – was I think that open door for him to, to walk on out of it instead of him saying you know giving the double bird to the show and to the BBC you know saying fuck this I'm out he's like you know, you know what Moffat's out you know that's gonna clear my my open door you know it's like they're gonna have my opening so I can exit you know smoothly and say you know thanks for the time but I'm done and the reason why I say this is because they had no plans of him regenerating I think at this point in time and also there was really no talk of the show ending at all. So really, you know, of course, now we're going to go into his 12th regeneration. So I think it's like, well, who do you do? What do you do at this point? I'm saying this right now. not saying this be progressive or anything else. Let's make it a woman. Why not? You know, why not? I know that Doctor Who fans might get mad at me when I say this. But don't you feel like this this show needs some sort of a shot in the arm? Something oh, yeah, that, that makes it different now. Shot. I mean, it oh, needs yeah. an adrenaline shot big time. And I think it's some of the if you're being honest with yourselves, Doctor Who fans, this is a show that needs some sort of adrenaline shot. You thought Capaldi was going to be it. He wasn't really into it. I'll agree with you on that. I mean, we saw him at Awesome Con. He didn't look like a happy guy at Austin. No. Maybe well, because wait, wait, he was wait, just wait. on a plane for that long. Well, but... he always looks pissed though. So that's true. <laughs> that's true. But still, I mean, just he never really seemed really into it i'm sure he would disagree in, in in public and all that stuff so i'm not putting words in his mouth he just did seem into it to me but if you make the next the next doctor female it gives you that shot in the arm like you said it gives, it gives you, you a new direction different yeah it gives you so, a different story to be able to tell and i think the doctor who's already been they've been pretty progressive over time so i give them i do give them credit for that but i think that this would be a good step in the right direction because it gives you a different Story to tell, and you've got the spinoff series class is going to be coming out as well. So you need something different now. This is your chance to actually do something a little bit different and 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 just breathe new life into this show, especially if you don't want to cancel it. Right, and I think that this is a show that the BBC, to me, Doctor Who, 
to the BBC is kind of like what Walking Dead is to AMC, where they want to keep this thing going totally. as long as they possibly can. So I think that it would be interesting to see what they do. I mean, you already have David Tennant and Billy Piper coming out and saying, yeah, you know, we have an idea who make a great doctor and, and, and you know, and, and change up an air on the same boat of like, yeah, make her, make it, make the doctor a woman, you know, yeah. because the thing is, and that's the thing about the show is that people are probably listening and saying, doctor needs to be a man. Da, 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 da. It's like, no, it's like, you do realize the doctor regenerates. Like he's been, you know, granted all dudes, but he's been old dudes, young dudes, you know, hasn't been the black guy yet. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, he has no certain limitations right. to, to when he's regenerating or it, it might be in the case when she regenerates coming into the season after this coming one. So, I mean, it's like, come on, guys. Like, you need you lost Moffat. You need a shot in the arm. I think this would be a great thing. You made the doctor female and you don't have to do the whole gender reversal where the companion's a guy. Don't make it two women. Make it two women. Fine. Awesome. Just I think that by doing that would make a great shot in the arm. I agree. I mean, I, th- I think that they just they need to do something. And I mean, it'd be different. Okay, I'm going to say this. If it was canon that it had to be a man for some reason, okay? Like, whatever the reason might be, if it was canon, then I would say, okay, I guess you got to have a dude. Like, 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 Batman has to be a man because man is literally in the name, okay? Right. So Batman has to be a man. There's Batgirl and Batwoman, so there you go. But Batman has to be a man. If there was something in canon that said the Doctor had to be male, then okay, don't do it. But if there isn't, why not do it? Because not only is it going to get people talking, like you said, because, you know, you said you weren't saying it to be progressive, and I know you're not, but people that are progressive are going to talk about it simply because of that reason. People have probably never talked about Doctor Who a day in their life. So you get more eyeballs on the product, you get people hooked on the product, and there you go. Well, here's the thing. No matter who they cast, obviously they're going to keep it a secret. Just like Valiant, for the most of this week, kept it a secret that, hey, we have a new comic series coming soon. And guess what? It's going to be written by a rival's Eric Hessier. And it's going to be pretty pretty interesting, to say the least. And they announced this week, guess what? It's called Secret Weapons, and it's going to be a limited series involving Valiant's own live wire. Yep, and Vulture actually went ahead and made this announcement. Now, you've probably been familiar with Livewire from some of the other larger arcs that, um, that Valiant's had. She's a technopath, basically. So, And she had a mentor that was called Toyo Harada. And now, apparently, this person had a secret facility. And they had all of these other telepaths and all these other creations that were just kind of thrown out, basically. They were deemed not powerful enough. So they just hid them away, and Livewire finds them and decides to use their strengths to her advantage, and then thus the secret weapons are born. So it's almost like a team of misfits type of deal. With, with And Livewire is actually very much in a leadership role in the Valiant Universe, so this is kind of a no-brainer for me. Well, uh, Harada is actually one of the main cogs. He's actually been one of the main cogs in the uh, Valiant Universe when it comes to the whole Harbinger thing yeah. and everything like that. So if you're currently reading... Like, we're reading currently uh, Harbinger Renegade, so if you're reading those, he's a main cog kind of in the spinning wheel of that series. So I think 
you know, having him involved in this as well with Livewire is great. And again, it's great to see Livewire get her own, you know, it's a limited series, kind of be the star, if you will, of this, this, this upcoming series from Valiant. Yeah, and putting her in a leadership role and bringing in a great artist like Raul Allen and, of course, having Patricia Martin on there as well. Now, don't forget, uh, Hessier is also going to be working on the Bloodshot movie and the Harbinger movie for right. Valiant. So, you know, uh, suddenly... Big get for them, right? Well, You've got that, an Oscar-nominated yeah. guy here. Well, yeah, he's of course, he wrote Arrival that's nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. So, you know, hey, it's going to be pretty, uh, pretty interesting to see where they decide to go with this going forward. And who knows? Maybe this person's going to be – maybe Eric is going to be – the one of the Keith figures in getting this whole Valiant universe in terms of cinematics off the ground as well, because yeah. the Bloodshot movie as well, and uh, as you mentioned, and so I mean it's going to be very awesome. He was also doing Harbinger, so I think that for Valiant, for uh, a publisher like Valiant, getting a, a guy, a writer like Hesser in this role to have him both doing the comics and a couple of the movies. And you have that Oscar cred behind them too. That should get people excited. Of course, there's also going to be a four-part limited series, as we want to point out as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think Livewire is one of those characters that's really you, you. You've waited to give her her own book, and I mean, you've seen her in some of the other arcs, like I said. And she is she's very much a central figure, and she's got that. Le- it's almost like how you know Captain Marvel has that leadership quality in Marvel comics, and we've seen her at the side of of, of Steve Rogers, Captain America, many many times before. Livewire is very much like that. Live wire has been you've been waiting for her to break out and get her own series and be the leader of this ragtag group that was just kind of tossed away by uh, by Harada and now she's going to use them against him kind of thing so and just and just use them to help save the world because that's what we do in comics we save the world so i think that uh, this will be very very interesting and i think that i think Valiant's doing backflips over who they've got at the helm for their first two movies. Well, James, some things we do here on the Down Nerdy Podcast is we, you know, of course, talk to people from comics and movies and television and so on and so forth. Well, coming up next, of course, last week we reviewed Powerless. We reviewed the pilot. And guess what? For all the people who didn't get a chance to see it early, you saw it early. You saw it this week because it premiered this week. And in honor of its premiere, we said, you know what? Let's get the executive producers of Powerless on the show. So come up next. You're going to hear from Powerless Executive Producers Patrick Schumacher and Justin Halpern next in the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Brittany Ishibashi from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Out of the Shadows, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, on this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, your safety is our main concern because we're headed out to Wayne Security to talk about the new show on NBC, Powerless, which you can see every Thursday night at 8.30 on NBC. We actually have both showrunners and executive producers, Patrick Schumacher and Justin Halpern. Guys, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having us. Oh, our pleasure. As a matter of fact, one thing that's been very clear from the beginning since this show existed, and it, it's exists in its own universe, I believe you guys said it was Earth-P. So how important was it for that to be go, going into this project? Um, was, go, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was really important because, you know, DC has sort of so many different universes, essentially, to play with. and But we wanted to make sure that we had kind of, the freedom to do what we wanted to do comedy wise in order for that to work. We couldn't really exist in 
a different in, in an already created universe, you know, because they're they're they already have, sort of have their own rules and they have their they're already people who are, you know, working those storylines. And so for us, I thought I think the the way that we were allowed to have the most fun was by just saying, you know, fuck it, we're gonna be we're gonna be our own thing. Yeah, like all those characters that exist in the Arrowverse and you know that exist in the DC cinematic universe, you know, they're they all exist in our world. You know, but it's our versions of those characters. And, you know, there are permutations of, you know, events that happened in Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, but maybe it didn't go down exactly as it went in the Zack Snyder film. But yeah, I mean, it's basically when we're when we're making those meta jokes on the show, it's going to be about a lot of stuff that you guys are familiar with, you know, within the cinematic universe and, you know, the CW shows, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's kind of our own little spin on that. If anything, we sort of rely on the actual comics for our uh, yeah. narrative in terms of like the timeline we're following. Been reading a lot of Rebirth stuff. Nice. Yeah, we were huge, huge fans of Rebirth. You know, we're talking about these different universes. We're talking about the Arrowverse you guys just mentioned. You know, and you know, James and I are people who. We watch literally nothing but nerd television, and what what I love about Powerless is that it provides a wonderful break from the darker, more serious route of comic book shows like Arrow and Flash that are on TV right now. So how big of an advantage is that, and what makes the show's change in tone so special to you guys? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, when DC, uh, you know, started the, the inception of the show, which was, which was actually bef- before our involvement, you know, DC just straight up wanted to do a pure comedy. I mean, they do have a sense of humor, and I know a lot of people kind of look at their films and they see sort of, you know, brooding Batfleck and it kind of assume that, uh, you know, everything is, is dour over there. But, you know, it's not the case. I think the, I think the shows, even the dramatic shows, you know, like Splash especially has a lot of levity with Cisco and you know, some of the other supporting characters, Barry Allen himself is, you know, I think a, a pretty light character, but, you know, this is an opportunity for DC to say, hey, you know, we can make jokes, we can make fun of ourselves, you're not going to see us shitting on the Justice League, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, tongue in cheek stuff that we're able to do in this show in a way that, uh, you know, you might not on an hour long so that was really important, you know, and and obviously this show is about the sort of every men and women who have to deal with uh, a world in which superpowered beings exist and are doing battle and the collateral damage is proving to be kind of a, a real uh, mm, obstacle, let's say, just to get through daily life. And, uh, you know, so because it's about those those humans, you know, they're kind of underdogs and in the overall scheme of things. And I think that's that lends itself to comedy in a big way. I mean, ultimately, I like the, the very simple way of describing comedy is that it's it's about dorks. And, uh, you know, I, I so I don't think you you want to tell a comedy. You want to you want to tell a comedic story about Superman. You know, he can do anything. He, he's he's unstoppable, basically. And, uh, you know, that wouldn't make for a very funny show. So so dealing with the um, the normal people who have allergies like justin yeah. was just sneezing through most of that right there with you buddy kind of stuff that we were, we were interested in yeah there's a reason why tom brady's not funny yeah he doesn't need to be he's aggressively <laughs> not funny <laughs> oh 
well. Oh, well. Well, one guy that is actually funny as we dive into the cast here is is Alan Tudyk. And, I mean, it's hard not to love the guy. I mean, now that I've seen him as Van Wayne, I can't really imagine anyone else playing that role now. So talk about what he brings to the cast and how many ad-libs has he already tried to get into the show? Alan is one of the most talented comedic performers we've ever worked with. We, you know, we've been doing this a little while now. We've worked with a lot of great people and Alan is top tier. I mean, he, there's, there's really like not much he can't do. And we kind of give Alan license to do, to add any which way he wants in the show, because sometimes you work with actors who think that they're good at improving and, and think they're good at improv and they're not. And uh, Alan is like, Anything Alan tosses in is great. I mean, he is, he's so skilled. He, he makes, I mean, sort of what you dream of as a writer is that you get actors who make whatever you put on the page better. Yeah. Um, and Alan is one of those guys who just everything he touches gets better. And you can see, like, in every movie and every TV show Alan's in, he's always like the scene stealer in, in the show or in the movie. And, uh, and it's just it, to have him. I remember reading this article about that uh, this interview with Tina Fey, and she was talking about the first year of Thirty Rock, and she said we just leaned on Alec Baldwin so hard because we knew if Alec Baldwin was in a scene, the scene would probably work. And and I think we feel very much the same way with with Alan. Yeah, and he's like he's so game for anything. Like we have this one episode. I think it's going to air third overall where. Um, he has a bit of a falling out with his father, played by Corbin Burnson, and it's all over this sort of business deal that that falls out of place because of a of a screw up on on Van's part, and so they have to um, kind of the the team at Wayne Security has to kind of regroup and and try and woo the Atlanteans into a be uh, hiring them for uh, security products after Black Manta stages this mass attack on the Capitol. And in that episode, Van is kind of dealing with his feelings about his father, his very complicated feelings with, about his father through through music, through like kind of bad oh, no. music. So it's, it's <laughs> oh, no. with a guitar and a harmonica rack, and it's him like getting out his feelings. And it's so great because like to, to your point about, you know, just improv and whatnot, like we basically were like, okay, you know, here's here's a scripted song, but... You know, if you can learn the chords on this, he's like, yeah, 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 totally. He like over the break, he learned the chords on that. And then he came back with like two or three other songs that he had written in addition. And they were all great. And we're like, yeah, we got we got to shoot that. He did this sort of like homage to Bob Dylan that made it into the cut. <laughs> it's so great. So funny. And like he never had any expectation that it was going to make it into the cut. I showed it to him yesterday and he was like so happy, so happy. He was like. He's like, did that? That didn't make it in, did it? I was like, yeah, I'll show it to you. He's like, oh, oh my god, oh my, oh, I'm so happy right now. <laughs> it, it was, I mean, it's, it's, it's genius. By the way, one of the ways in which you know our universe uh, differs from others is we've sort. And I don't know if this is kind of an episode yet, but in, in our universe, our, our thinking is that Bruce Wayne's parents died, and then he came to live with Van and Van's parents for a month, but then all his crying bothered Van's parents. And so... so <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So, so that's like... Uh, that's that's the uh, uh, narrative that we're spinning. Van's side of the family uh, heavily contributed to creating Batman. They just don't know it. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
That's just perfect. <laughs> and, you know, the, the pilot aired this week, and we saw the team of Teddy, Ron, and the others be very standoffish when it came to Vanessa Hudgens' character, Emily. But, of course, towards the end of the episode, they began to become more accepting of her and how long she's going to be at the company. So how will the team's bond and creativity be tested over the next few episodes? Vanessa Hudgens has this ability to play these, like, sort of spunky, optimistic, can't can't beat her down, like little like like a puppy that won't stop. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, very well. yeah. The and puppy so, analogy is perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah. yeah, and she does so. She does that so well that we were like, why would we want the team to just like embrace her like right away when it's so funny seeing them kind of like smack down that enthusiasm? So we kind of put her through the paces for most of the first season and it, it really we really make her ha- earn it she wins them over but it takes it takes most of the season to do that and i think for us it's like vanessa is one of the like you know going going into this we didn't really know what to expect with vanessa because all we sort of knew her from was you know high school musical or greece and like we didn't really know what she could do and what her limitations were and She's proven to really be uh, a strong comedic performer and somebody that can really like set a lot of people up in scenes, which is a lot harder to do than people think. Absolutely. We're talking to Patrick Schumacher and Justin Halperin, showrunners and executive producers of Powerless on NBC, which is Thursday nights at 8.30. Now, guys, when you were at TCA, you were talking about how protective DC is of their characters, and we were talking about that a little bit earlier on as well, and how much you were able to kind of poke fun at them. So are there any characters that you guys consider, like, sacred, that just all bets are off, we're not going after this character at all? Well, I think there, there's no character... We, we've never heard DC say to us, you can't make fun of this character. I think we try to ask ourselves when we're making jokes about the character, is this a joke somebody who lived in the world that this character existed in make, or is this us sort of making fun of the comic book or the movie. And I think we try to keep it consistent with, like, if you were living in a world where Batman really existed, what would your jokes about Batman be? And if and if, and if they play that way, then we'll use it. But we've, we've kind of shit on everybody at some point during the series. I mean, there's nobody, yeah. there's nobody that DC is like, you can't make fun of that. I think one of the things DC likes about this show is that it, it shows that they're willing to be self-deprecating. I mean, we, we even like, we sort of take a, sh- it's indirectly, but we sort of take a shot in the pilot at kind of all superhero movies. And, and you know, where we say it's like, you know, gone are the days of, of people, of bad guys trying to steal rubies from a museum. And now you have superheroes fighting each other for vaguely defined vaguely reasons. reasons yeah. Which is like, yeah. you know, it, you know, it's Civil War, it's, it's Batman, Superman, it's, you know. So, yeah, I mean, and when I said earlier that, you know, we don't really shit on characters, I we absolutely shit on them in the sense of, like, gentle ribbing. But I, but it's it's like we're not... We're not making jokes that are sort of character assassinating. Like right. we're not we're not gonna have like, a, an episode where it's like Green Lantern's a rapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like making those types of jokes that like just come out of left field out of nowhere. Yeah, that's very understandable. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like a for instance is um we we have this we have a B story in one of uh the episodes where Teddy and Ron find a battering and Van is like really pissed off because uh he has a, like an axe to grind with batman because 
uh, he Batman sideswiped his car once in the Batmobile, <laughs> and, and he didn't leave insurance information, and so Van takes some shots at Batman. But it's in that context of like, yeah, you know, Batman causes like a lot of collateral property damage when you're, you know, if you lived in Gotham, and so that's like where Van's coming from. Yeah, ultimately, it's for the greater good. You know, in this particular instance. Batman was chasing down a uh, a truck full of warheads headed toward an orphanage, but he doesn't give a shit about that. He only cares about the rearview mirror and his Maybach. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is Van's a very self-centered asshole. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. Big time. Big time. <laughs> I think I caught wind of that in the pilot a little bit, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, by the way, don't, I mean, it seems like, you know, Bruce Wayne, you know, his family tree is murky, but imagine if there was a real Bruce Wayne in, in the real world, there's no chance that they would all be like well-adjusted, not asshole-ish people. Oh you know? yeah. Oh totally. His family yeah. members would all be like, you know, really, really rich guys that had trust funds and, you know, so that's why we really enjoy playing with Van like that. It's, it's, it's a character that we feel like is, it is like, if you took a different kind of tact on Bruce Wayne, you might find Van Wayne. And, uh, you know, one of the many scenes we talked about this off-air that James and I were just howling about, of course, included Ron and his invention of Superman kryptonite glass. And, uh, you know, his whole pitch to Emily was hilarious. So if you guys had to individually pitch a product to Emily, what would your product be and which DC hero or villain would it be targeted at? My invention would be a paperweight that alerts you when the Flash is running by you so you can know when to weigh down your documents <laughs> that's a good one you know you're going through a, you know you're, you're going through like a divorce proceeding with your lawyer the last thing you need is some guy fucking going running at Mach three and exactly. like you have all the papers going everywhere and you lose custody of your children i'd, I'd create a riddler transfer translator just to piss him off <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny we have an actual <clears throat> there's a I think it's maybe like episode seven, seven. Uh, Emily ends up dating someone who she doesn't realize is a henchman for the Riddler. (laughs) And, uh, and we do some, some funny Riddler henchman stuff and we do some stuff with uh, that. I think that episode you guys will really like, and we really like lay, I I would say we tend to try to keep things where the, you know, hardcore comic book fans will enjoy them on their level, but people will also enjoy, you know, people who don't know anything about comic books will still enjoy the show and I think in that episode, we leaned a little harder into like what we feel like hardcore comic book fans would enjoy. I think you guys will like that one. The Riddler, I don't think when he's having sex, I don't think he would have safe words. He'd have like a safe phrase, you know, like a clock with two <laughs> hands that goes forward at five, at five o'clock and by two hours is what, you know, or just some... some... <laughs> he could be dead by then. <laughs> right. But he's just probably... Who, who knows? Maybe he's Kevin Bacon in Animal House and just loves getting smacked on the ass with a, with a fucking uh, paddle. Who knows? He is definitely, I think, one of the most interesting... Uh, Gotham villains. I, I wish that they would. Yeah, I hope he he shows his face maybe, in one of the new movies. Maybe he pays hookers to shit in his bowler hat and put it on his head. I don't know. <laughs> That's the Chris Nolan version of the Riddler. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Damn it! We'll never get to see that one. <laughs> we're, we're gonna have well, a lot a of scatological humor for you guys in this show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think we've given him a chance to actually answer the question yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, well, there's. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. The, well, there's some, there, there's a lot of stuff that we thought about, you know, made it into the show, you know, one of which was actually cut from the pilot, but, uh, we thought, um, 
scarecrow, a scarecrow fear gas mask. It's basically just a very stylish, like neoprene sort of like ski mask that has a breathe, like a rebreather on it. Right. Uh, so yeah, you can just like walk around in style in in, uh, in Gotham and not have to worry about uh, freaking out and seeing, being chased by killer bees. Nice. Two 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 yeah. face anti burn cream. Ooh, I like that. Ooh, that's- that's yeah, a good one. That's a good one. I like that. Aloe vera product. <laughs> Everything has to come with Bluetooth now, so you got to make sure you put Bluetooth in there somewhere. Oh, hell nice. They can do like a tie-in with Beats by Dre. And... <laughs> Beats by Dre to combat Black Canary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh wow! Well, I mean, we kind of touched on this a couple minutes ago, talking about the hardcore comic book fans. I think it's, I think it's easy to say that they can be really tough to please. And one of the things I liked about the pilot is, you guys didn't really beat the Easter eggs to death, and it wasn't a constant name drop and here and a name drop there. So, I mean, you said that this is something somebody can both enjoy. Where did you guys feel like the line was for using stuff that hardcore comic book fans would enjoy? It's it's tough because I think with with everything, I think anytime we run into a reference, we we try to think about why we're using it, and if we have a good reason for using it, and ha- and if it feels like something would that would actually come up in conversation in this world, then then we do it. But I think, you know, our feeling is like if we're bringing, you know, we have, as you guys know, there are two. There's a hero and a villain in the pilot, both of which are pretty obscure. You know, yet right. they're, they're pretty deep cuts, and I think that our feeling is like. People understand, like, if you have a villain that shoots ice out of their hands, even if it's, even if you're not doing Mr. Freeze and you're doing Captain Cold or somebody like that, people understand that general concept. So, in a way, it it's allows us to, like, service hardcore comic book fans. But then also, because it's just sort of in the zeitgeist, people who aren't hardcore comic book fans will probably still get it. Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, of course, as we know, this show is set in the DC universe, kind of building on what James asked you guys just now. Uh, without spoiling anything, what are some of your favorite references to DC's legendary characters that we're going to see going forward in this season? Well, you're going to see a lot of Aquaman stuff in the third episode. Um, we have three sort of businessmen from Atlantis that come to the office, and you know they, they worship Aquaman, and sort of Van takes advantage of that kind of hero worship to make a false promise to them that Aquaman's going to show up to their uh, to their office party um, because he's tight with A to the Q, as he calls him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of Atlantean stuff there. Um, what else What else can we talk about? We talked about the Batarang. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Just the, talked about the Riddler. The Riddler, yeah. Um, um, what else what do we have? We have uh, uh, Frostbite. Yeah, there's a, so in... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and what I think is going to maybe air fourth, there's an episode called Cold Season where we've we've decided that there is a time of year where all of DC's numerous ice-themed villains descend upon Charm City to wreak havoc, and it essentially turns the outside of the city into a winter wonderland. And uh, you know, but it, but everybody who lives in Charm City kind of treats it like a like a blizzard and like a like a snow day sort of thing. So we have a character named Frostbite who. I believe maybe only appeared in one comic, but she essentially, uh, you know, is a is your your sort of I don't know typical ice themed villain in the sense of you know she generates ice blasts. We have her sort of skating across the skyline on an ice slide and shooting uh, 
ice beams at, at uh, Crimson Fox, um, who she eventually encases in ice, and our team has to uh, get her out of it using some of their te- patented technology. We just did a we just did an episode where Doctor Psycho releases like a gas into the city, and we do like Ooh. kind of a, we do a we do a making a murderer parody with Doctor. <laughs> Uh, what a perfect character choice for that yeah it's like is he innocent or is he guilty his name is dr psycho yeah they're like well they changed it to ellis island it's not actually uh uh yeah so uh those are i don't know those are some of our favorites um and we also are going to in the in the last few episodes of season one introduce a new character uh, I shouldn't say new because she's from the canon, but um, Green Fury, a.k.a. Fire, is going to become uh, a uh, sort of regular visitor to Charm City. And she's played by Natalie Morales from uh, The Grinder and Parks and Recreation. Nice. Well, we are your security to our listeners from bad TV, and that's why we want you to watch Powerless <laughs> Thursday nights on NBC at 8.30. You guys are kind of bringing back must-see TV for NBC. I got to tell you, this is going to be a show you guys are going to want to watch live every week. It's Patrick Schumacher and Justin Halpern, showrunners and executive producers from Powerless. Thanks for joining us this week, guys. Thanks for having Thank us, guys. You. And we really appreciate the you know uh, vote of confidence. It's 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 gratifying to hear from you know people who really traffic in this world that uh, it resonated with you. So we appreciate it. Well, James, over our lifetime, we've seen a lot of inventions and ideas, but I think some of the most unique inventions are seen on NBC's Powerless. Absolutely, man. I mean, it's really the sky's the limit, especially if they're being given the freedom and props to people at Warner Brothers and DC and NBC for giving Patrick and Justin the freedom to just kind of do what they want and know and kind of trust them because... Now what what I'm getting from talking to these guys is they're going to be able to do basically whatever they want to do, and there's nothing off limits, and I think that's going to make Powerless even better. Yeah, and I think that that's the great thing as well is the fact that you – and we talked about this with them off air. It was just like you know, it's great working for a company like DC who says, hey, you know what? We're, you know, it's okay to poke the bear. It's okay to take some jabs, you know, to laugh at ourselves. And I think that's what a lot of companies – need to realize a lot of you know stuff like that is just it's okay to laugh at yourself like, it's fine it's perfect you know there's like a few lines that you know they're in the pilot that are like real funny ass jabs at dc and just yep. you know superhero movies in general and it's just fun and i think that you know seeing a show that breaks that 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 from that that tone in terms of just seriousness and also you know, a show that doesn't have a lot, you know, that has a lot of color in it as well. And just, it's just fun. You know, it's like, you know, you have Arrow on Wednesdays, you got Supergirl on, on, on Mondays and stuff like that. But it's nice on a Thursday night, you can sit down at 830 and just have some laughs, some genuine laughs with Powerless. Absolutely. And I'll be honest, I can't remember the last time I was able to sit down with a sitcom and enjoy it from, from start to finish all 30 minutes. But when we watch Powerless, I enjoyed every second of the show, and I think that that's one of the things that that you want. And, I mean, NBC putting this on Thursday nights, the the night of must-see TV, or at least it used to be anyway at 8.30, shows that they've got the confidence in the show saying, hey, 
this is what we want going forward for our comedy block to bring that back. And the fact that they were talking about how you're there letting Alan Tudyk be Alan Tudyk. You let Danny Pudi be Danny Pudi and so on and so forth. And I mean, I, I think that they've, they've capitalized on that as well. I think one of the funnest sets to be on, of course, is when you have characters, you have actors playing characters where they can just pretty much be themselves, you know, and they can improv and they can have some fun, you know, and I think that that shows a lot in in Powerless, you know, it really, really goes through everything. Absolutely, and I I can't wait to see that they gave us some teases of future episodes of stuff that's going to be happening. I just can't, now I can't wait for that announcement that there's going to be a season two. I just, I feel it in my bones, man. Well, again, whenever you have a pilot that really grabs people the way this pilot for Powerless grabs you, where it's different, it's colorful, it's changing tone, changing pace, you know, it's just it's just all around different. And you know, where we watched this, we were literally had tears rolling out of our face from laughter. We were laughing so fucking hard at the show and just the jokes there was pouring out. I think that, that NBC really has a true hit on its hands. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. But, hey, if you want more of us online, be sure to hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. We're also on Twitter at Down Nerdy 757. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch at Merc with One Arm. And I, on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Merc with One Arm. I stream at 8 p.m. Don't have set days just because of scheduling with recording and everything else changes within every week. But whenever I do stream, it's always at 8 p.m. and it goes for around two to three hours. There you go. And I'm boring because I just have Twitter. I'm at James Ace with them on Twitter. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. But you can get all this information, by the way. Go to our website right now, downandnerdypodcast.com. Not only that, we've got a couple of different comic book reviews that we have up there, other than the ones that we reviewed on the show. You can get all the information on this week's show. You want to buy Season 1 of Powerless on Amazon Instant? You can do that as well in the This Week section of downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, pack safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.